you wanted the best, you've got the best podcast. The hottest, hottest. podcast in the world. In the world. The Chris Voss Show, the preeminent podcast with guests so smart you may experience serious brain bleed. Get ready, get ready. Strap yourself in. Keep your hands, arms, and legs inside the vehicle at all times because you're about to go on a monster education roller coaster with your brain. Now, here's your host, Chris Voss. Hi, folks. Chris Voss here from thechrisvossshow.com. The Chris Voss Show. Hey, I'm just here for the brain bleed, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for tuning in, guys. Be sure to go uh, tell your friends, neighbors, relatives to sign up for the show. Go to YouTube.com for just Chris Voss. Hit the bell notification button. That's the one thing you may accomplish today while you're watching video games or whatever else you're doing when you're trying to work. Everyone's been forced back to work, and I'm pretty sure no one's really working at this point. Go to Goodreads.com for just Chris Voss. Also, see all my groups on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram. See the big LinkedIn newsletter that goes out every day. And the LinkedIn uh, group that we have over there, a big C-class of people, 122,000 people I think it's up to now. As always, we have the amazing, most brilliant minds and authors on the show, and they, and none of them are me. <laughs> almost almost slipped the landing on that one. Anyway, we have got uh, amazing gentlemen on the show. This book came out May 3rd. 2022. The book is called Seen and Unseen Technology, Social Media, and the Fight for Racial Justice by Dr. Mark Lamont Hill and Todd Brewster. Todd, you didn't have that doctor in your name there? No, unfortunately, I I didn't get that far in school. No, Mark, Mark, that marks this is why Mark leads the ticket here. Dr. Mark Lamont Hill is currently the host of BET News and Black News Tonight. And is the Steve Charles Chair in Media, Cities, and Solutions at Temple University. He is the founder and director of the People's Education Center and the owner of Uncle Bobby's Coffee and Books in Philadelphia. I'm hungry now. He has authored or co-authored six books. Todd is Todd Brewster is a longtime journalist who has worked as an editor for Time and Life and as a senior producer for ABC News. He is taught at Temple University, Wesleyan University, and Mount Holyoke College, and was a Knight Fellow at Yale Law School. He is a co-author with the late Peter Jennings of the best-selling books, The Century, The Century for Young People, and more. We'll get into some of those details. Welcome to the show, gentlemen. How are you? Very well. It's great to be here. Thank you for having us. All right, I need you all to calm down just a second. You know, just take it down a little bit. <laughs> we're, very, we're very serious gentlemen here. There you go. I know it's hard when you have two guys on because you're like, who's going first? So give us your .coms, if you would, where people can find you guys on the interwebs and learn more about you. ToddBrewster.com. Yeah. Just ToddBrewster.com. All right. 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 Mark right. 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 is 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 okay, and all my social medias are just Mark Lamontel. There you go. So what made you guys get together and write this book? Man, you know, we are two people who care about issues. And during the pandemic, we were trying to figure out, trying to make sense of the killing of George Floyd, along with all these other wild things that were happening from Breonna Taylor to Ahmaud Arbery. You know, we were trying to figure out later on Kyle Rittenhouse. We were trying to understand sort of how technology and media tell a story, help us understand race and help us fight for justice in this country. And so we decided to do it together because, you know, we had some friends in common, professional relationships in common. 
And then we became friends and, and two people who appreciate each other's work a great deal. And so we said the best thing to do at this moment is put our heads together and use our different talents and figure out how to tell a story that will help America understand race better, that'll help the tech nerds understand why tech matters, that'll help the media, the, you know, the media observers and you and me and everybody else like sort of help them figure out, you know, the role that media plays all of this messiness. So it was like, it's a perfect opportunity. There you go. I would agree with 100% with all that. I mean, I think, you know, sadly, we, we need a lot of help understanding things these days. And the events of the past few years have been, you know, it's been a turbulent period. And we hope that the book helps us uh, get some of these stories in perspective and, and uh, teaches those who read it more about what's happening now and what has happened in the past. And definitely uh, relevance here, because I guess tomorrow is sadly the second anniversary of the of the murder of George Floyd. So we're kind of at a pivotal moment. And of course, people watch our videos 10, 12 years from now. So it'll be interesting to mark that. Well, it's interesting because one of the things that we hope we've answered in this book is why George Floyd, the George Floyd video uh, stuck, why it created the outcry that it did, why it drove people to the streets in protest. What's left unanswered is the question is how long People will be remembering that video. And here we are two years out. Uh, a lot has happened in those two years. And uh, I think this, you know, the history will make that judgment finally of what impact that video has had. But it's, it's, it's that story that we've hoped to mine in this book. Definitely. Did, Mark, did you want to throw in for any of that? No, I mean, I think Todd hit the nail on the head. You know, I, I, I'm always trying to understand how we got here. And one of the things I've learned as a writer is that writing becomes its own form of inquiry. You know, sometimes you write and you learn and you write and you dig and you study and you learn and you write more. And so, you know, in many ways, we wrote this book, not just for uh, millions of people who wrote black, but for ourselves to help mm -hmm. understand yeah. how the country get where it is and why we're here. Yeah. You know, that, that, just to add to that, I mean, one of the things that I always try to tell my students that uh, writing makes you precise, right? I mean, you look at something, you say, I'm going to describe that. And then you say, no, it's not what I want. That first word that I've chosen is another word. And then maybe it's not that word, it's another word. And the same thing happens in, in good conversation, frankly. And, and, and I feel that one of the, one of the many wonderful things of working uh, with each other has been that Mark and I, I think feed off of each other very nicely. And we end up, uh, our ideas get better the more we talk about them. And so that, that process is what you're seeing through this. Probably makes really good writing is, you know, the two of you are teaming up. When I wrote my book last year, I, I, I would have loved to add somebody to bounce stuff off of. Instead, it was just my editor who threw all the manuscript out and said, rewrite it all and it'd be fine. So <laughs> this is this is kind of a conversation you guys want to have with America about what's going on. Try and bring people up to speed or give them a deeper education on, on what's going on in our society and some of the different ills that we need to fix. Absolutely. I think a few things here. I mean, one, we're storytellers. Want to tell the story of George Floyd and Brianna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery and Janika Charles, all these amazing We want to tell, want people to get a fuller picture of who and what people are. You know, you see George Floyd with a knee on his neck for nine minutes, you get a story of America. You get a story of policing, you get a story of a crisis, you get a story of a particular interaction. But you don't get the story of George Floyd. That story doesn't start with the knee on his neck. It starts when he's born. And we want to understand the humanity of folks. So we want to tell these stories with texture and nuance. And we don't want to be boring. Um, yeah. 
but you know, but but we also went through some other things. You know, want to give America a sense of history. You know, one of the things that America often does is, you know, as Gorbachev called it, the United States of amnesia. Right? We like to forget. You know, what is too painful to re- to remember, we simply choose to forget. Right? As the song goes. And so part of what we want to do is say, hey, you can't talk George Floyd without talking about the history here. You can't talk about Kyle Rittenhouse without talking about history here. And so we want to walk people through a long history of people using technology and media to expose injustice, to fight for justice, uh, and to tell the truth. But to also know that not just the good guys that have technology, everybody has. And everybody has a different vantage point. And I, I, you know, I, I can't remember if it was Eddie Glaude Jr. or someone who came on our show who basically said, it was the first time that I'd heard it and I was shocked by it. And he said, you know, the George Floyd killing was, was the first time that we saw a modern day lynching. That's really what it was. And I remember the horror of thinking about that. Absolutely. It was because it's, you know, we, we talk about this in the book that it's, you know, a shooting is an instant, a lynching is a performance, right? I mean, it's, it's something that takes time. Uh, and you're watching someone die before your eyes. There was uh, a pleasure to be found in that in, among the white supremacists in the late 19th and early 20th centuries that we, Mark very ably uh, titled our first chapter, The Spectacle of Death. And for the, for the white supremacists of the late 19th, early 20th centuries, those lynching black victims, it was spectacle. It was an opportunity. It was a social event. It was something to take pictures of. It was something where you thirsted for souvenirs. And, and it, it had that, that quality that George killing, not so much in, in, in that spirit as the fact that it was a spectacle. And this time the spectacle was dark and disturbing and shocking and shameful and um that it it there's something we even say this in the book that watching the george floyd video you feel guilty yourself you feel almost as if you are are party to derek chauvin and 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 if we think of a collective consciousness as i think we should we are in a way responsible for uh, the killing of george floyd so yes i think i think eddie glott is exactly right it is a modern day lynching and it's what we one of the things we do in the book is as we're referencing before is show the historical antecedents of these events that they didn't happen in a vacuum that there was a long road leading up to them and that there were signs of this all throughout american history the the the, the same kind of mind that, that puts a knee to the neck of George Floyd is, is the kind of mind that put a noose around the neck of so many black victims in the late 19th century during the time of Reconstruction and the years afterwards. Yeah. The length of the video, the, the smirk on, the smart-ass smirk on the, on the officer's face, you know, the people are screaming what we're all screaming in our head, get off his neck, he's dying. And, the, and to hear the humanity of him calling out for his mother, and realizing that he's at the door and you're the whole thing is just it's a horror show but also it's a reflection of us and 450 years of of horror show of what this nation has done and built absolutely this this is a legacy and in many ways what we saw uh the atlas was simply a reenactment a very very old american ritual um, of state violence, state-sponsored violence. Sometimes it's the police. Sometimes it's the police allowing it to happen or the government allowing it to happen. We think about the lynchings of the 19th and 20th century. And it's, gru- it's gruesome to watch. It's difficult to 
part of why our eyes couldn't avert from it was trying to make sense of it. Part of why it was so painful to watch was life being extinguished eyes. Yeah. But in yeah. many ways, it's that it, in many ways, the reason why that video resonated, because I think that's a really important question we have to wrestle with too, is why this video, we've seen lots of videos, lots of things, yeah. is that this one was nine minutes long. It was yeah. nine minutes long and it was painful to watch. It was, it was like a still photo in a sense that you saw the knee on the deck for nine minutes. But it was also a video and it, it endured and it felt loud and raw and we had to sit with it and wrestle with it. And for a lot of Americans who had never actually watched a video like that, were now forced to come to terms with something that we could keep in the recesses of our minds. They were forced to acknowledge a truth that we could often deny before by saying, oh, there's some bad apples. or Oh, it's not as bad as they say. Or, oh, black people are exaggerating. Or, oh, those white allies aren't telling the truth. They're just trying to score points. And suddenly that video sparked a national and really international outrage and outcry precisely because it was real, it was raw, and it was in our face. And there's a tradition of that happening that we have to that we have to take seriously if we want America to get that education. We want America to not just grow old but also grow up. Yeah. And we, we no, definitely no. You know, Chris, it's, it's the, as Mark was talking, I was thinking about how we're doing a talk at a library tonight together. And I was putting together some, just some visuals to have, so we would have them as reference points. And, and I thought, should I put the George Floyd video in there? And I, it's a funny thing. We call it nine minutes and 29 seconds. I don't know of anyone who's actually sat down and watched all nine minutes and 29 seconds. Mark and I discussed this a few weeks ago, how, you know, there's, do, is it necessary that we all do that? And I think we came to an agreement, it's more necessary that we know that someone had their knee on the neck of George Floyd for nine minutes, and 29 seconds. It's one of the few examples of a stunning photograph, and I'll call it a photograph in the grander term, video and still photography, where you, you, its existence is its power. Looking at it is almost too disturbing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it was, it was also interesting to me just the smirk, the look on the cop's face, you know exactly what he knows what he's doing. And it, it, it's almost like I've gotten away with this before. I'm going to keep doing it. And one of my friends is a body language expert. And I remember watching the trial with them and seeing the part where he gets the guilty plea or guilty sentence. And he really thought he was going to get off. When you look at his body language, absolutely, he really expected it. And he expected it when he was on George Floyd's neck. Absolutely. Impunity is the expectation when it comes to law enforcement in everyday so Throughout history, we have given police officers the benefit of the doubt. We have created media, law, pop culture. All the infrastructure is about framing the police as well-intentioned, good people who have to fight bad people in a complicated, messy system. And so because of that, we're inclined to give them grace and mercy at all times. And I'm not saying that people don't deserve grace and mercy, but the problem is George Floyd also deserves grace and mercy. Yes. And, and throughout history, when people are shot by police, shot by police, used by police, it's been very difficult for them to have their voices heard. It's been very difficult for, for their truth to, to emerge and be honored. Part of what it means to say that Black lives matter is not just to say that they shouldn't be killed. It's also to say that our experiences have to count, that our stories have to count, that our testimony has to count. And so often throughout American history, the only way that black I think we 
I think we lost you a little bit there, Mark, if you yeah. can hear us. Yeah. Uh, let me, Mark? maybe I should, I'll jump in here. So I would say absolutely. Is that yeah. okay, we can hear ahead. you now. Go ahead. We lost you for about a minute there. Yeah. I, I, oh, okay. Sorry. Basically, what I was saying was, is that throughout history, even when we've gotten the witness or the, the smoking gun videotape, it still often isn't enough. Yeah. It wasn't enough for Rodney King. It was Rodney King, you know, wasn't you know, didn't get justice because there was a videotape. You know, Walter Scott didn't initially get justice because there was a videotape. You know, it's not enough, you know, to say again, to say Black Lives Matter is not just to say don't kill us, it's to say trust our witness, believe our stories, believe our testimony, honor our experiences. And this country has done that. And so part of what we do in our book, Seen and Unseen is showed the various ways that technology has helped to tell those stories, but also how sometimes that still doesn't work. You know, you know, Chris, you mentioned this, the, the, the uh, smirk you said on Derek Chauvin's face. There's also a nonchalance, right, to his body <laughs> language. And, and, and it, it's critical to understand that because this is not the heat of the moment. This is not him feeling his own life is threat. This is not a, a crime of passion, right? This is a crime of ordinariness. And, and one of the things we say in the book, which I, I think is true, is that, and it goes right to what Mark just said about respecting black lives through respecting their stories, respecting their, their testimony. For black people, this was shocking, this video, mm -hmm. but it was also not surprising. Yeah. It had the quality of ordinariness, right? Mm -hmm. And the ordinariness was not only in the fact that this happens over and over again, in more ways than we are able to keep record of, but this is the tip of the iceberg kind of thing. But also, it, look at the body language of the man committing the murder. Yeah. It's, it's as if he's thinking about, you know, what, what he's going to have for dinner. You know, it has this, this quality of uh, that that life does not matter to me. I'm, I'm just going through the thing I go through every day. Yeah, the... the... And, and it just stays with us. It never ends. You know, the, the recent shooting at the supermarket in, I believe, Buffalo. You know, I, the fact that he just targeted black people. You know, many of my black friends just have been terrorized by that. Uh, and I've seen them talking about it on Facebook. And and it's just uh, it's just a horror show. Give us a, So give us an overview of the book. I think there's four different stories that you weave in here and tales. Yeah, we, we tell the story of George Floyd, of course, of crosses of really two chapters. And, and in part, what we're telling there is also the story of the democratization of, of a surveillance video, in a sense. I mean, it's a very a, a different world now that we all carry around in our pockets, something that is capable of producing high quality video of anything that we happen to see in front of us. Mm -hmm. That combined with the amount of uh, surveillance cameras that are, are positioned in along streets means that we are... We're never very far from a camera's eye, right? So that's a whole mm -hmm. different world we're living in. It allows us to see things that we have not seen. It allows people to be seen who have not been. Th then we, we, we tell the story of, of Ahmaud Arbery. And the um, Ahmaud Arbery, as you, your listeners probably know, was the boy who, or young man who was out jogging. I think he was, was he 21? I think he was 21, right? At jogging in, in Georgia. And he is quartered by uh, three self-appointed sort of citizens arrest practitioners who who block him and eventually get in a confrontation with him. They're armed. He's not. And they kill him. That story is is 
about the video, certainly, that was taken yeah. ironically by one of the, the uh, killers, but also about the notion of a campaign that can be mounted these days through social media to bring justice in a way that couldn't have happened in years past. Arbery is actually shot and killed in February of 2020. Mm -hmm. And his the prosecutor chooses not to prosecute them, the father son team that had had actually been the, the the main aggressors here. But it's because of of the social media contact and the ability to organize through it that outrage was built over the fact that that this young man had been killed while jogging, and that then finally brought those men to justice. And as you know, they were convicted of killing Maude Arbery. We also tell the story of Charlottesville, the the uh, march on on uh, Charlottesville over the, the Charlottesville's decision to, to take down monuments to Robert E. Lee and to Stonewall Jackson. And we tell the story of um, uh, Kenosha, where the violence there ended up with a 17-year-old uh, Kyle Rittenhouse uh, killing two people who were protesters that, in that day. Do you parallel them? Be, you know how he was, I mean, it was just astounding how he just walked by the cops with his gun, like, hey, you know, how's it going, eh? And they're just like, yeah, just go home. Yeah, I mean... Go ahead. Go ahead, Mark. No, no I'm just going to say it, it's somewhat stunning the way he was treated by police and the way many of the sort of self-deputized vigilantes who were out there were not only ignored by law enforcement, they were even thanked at one point by, by, by police officers through their car speakers. So the idea is, is that we have different rules, different standards, different expectations for different folk. But this is why media and technology is so important. This, we talked about the lynching earlier and the same photographs that were used to spark outrage for lynching and how vile it was. Those same photos were passed around as postcards <laughs> by people who, who, who are white supremacists but, and, and not just like people in clans rooms, but everyday people who would go to lynchings like picnics and they would mm -hmm. take home black body parts as souvenirs. I mean, technology is what you do with it. Text is what you do with it. And similarly, Kyle Rittenhouse, you know, when people were looking at his live raw footage, some people saw it as, you know, a, a kid who'd been radicalized and went down to the ground to shoot some, you know, some some people on the opposite side of the aisle and some people who, you know, who, you know, who he disagreed with. Others saw him as an American patriot who mm -hmm. was going down there to, to impose order. And so it's not just a question of differential treatment. It's, it's really about different worldviews. It's about different ways of reading a person uh, mm -hmm. and a text. Yeah. It's about different yeah. values. It's about, it's about, you know, there, when, when Kyle Rittenhouse is running from the scene because he's just shot and killed one of the protesters, he's approached by others because they believe he's a mass shooter on the loose. Right? Yeah. He's a mass shooter on the loose. And, and then he shoots them. Right. And so you can say, who is the, who is the aggressor here? Who's the initiator here? Right. It's, it's, it's a matter. We talk about this a lot. The, the, the need for curators, for people to help us understand what's in these videos, help us understand what's in the, what's in the photographs is keen. And it's, it's, it's here where we have to attach to people who share the values that we share, that we share. And, and, and some people say, well, that's missing, re reinterpreting with the, the raw truth in front of you. No, it's understanding it. It's understanding. Yeah. Right. The video doesn't. Video doesn't lie. I mean, you, you, I mean, you can tell me all day long, you know, don't believe your what you see in here. Wasn't there a administration recently that said that the, you know, but you can see it on the video, and you're like, no, I'm, I wasn't born yesterday. That's that's for real. What's going? On. Uh, you guys also touch on some stuff with Frederick Douglass, and I think James Baldwin's in here as well. One of my favorite orders. 
Yeah, man. You know, it, it, it's again, it's, it's, it's a fascinating thing when you think about media technology and the quest for racial justice for lots of reasons. And the book goes into many really interesting conversations about, about technology and media. But one of the other things we talk about is the influencer, mm-hmm. you know, and, and what it means to be an influencer, you know, you know, I don't know if there was, there were celebrities before there were famous people. There were people with influence, you know, mm-hmm. there's always going to be a Chris Voss in the world who can shape public thought and attention. <laughs> but, but what does it mean for someone to be able to go on their IG and suddenly have you taking flat tummy tea? You know, there's a way that influence happens on, on social media that we need to think through. It's, and there are people who are shaping our consumer habits. There are people who are shaping our, our consumption habits through entertainment, through whatever. But then there are people who are shaping our thought, who are influencing how we think and talk about race. There are people whose words, whose ideas, whose arguments, who, whose life even have shaped us in really profound ways. Now, Mostly when we think about people like that, we think about people who are living. Mm-hmm. But it seems to me in the era of Black Lives Matter, and it's something I learned from Todd, and in the book, he, he did some really interesting digging on this particular point. You know, the most quoted person in the context of Black Lives Matter, in the context of this racial justice project, this racial reckoning, the most quoted person is James Baldwin. Yeah, J- James Baldwin from the grave. Yeah. This influencing conversation, we're quoting him, we're citing him, we're showing his image, we're doing all this stuff because Baldwin had a profound impact. I mean, who better to talk about a, a, a struggle not just for racial justice, but intersectional justice, mm-hmm. and race and sexuality and gender and class and all this stuff, than Baldwin, someone who himself embodied so many of these identities, but so much of this these politics. And so, you know, Baldwin looms large in our book, not just because, you know, our book seen and unseen kind of is an homage also to evidence of things not seen. His book on the Atlanta child murders. It's, it's because Baldwin and his talk his point about confronting things in order to change them is part of what we're trying to do with seen and unseen. But it's also, it kind of anchors a chapter that talks about how voices from the past can come forward again, how <clears throat> people from the past can reemerge and how the words of people, even people we love and admire, can become repurposed, rearticulated, reshaped, remixed, even if you want to get hip hop with it, you know, in ways that sometimes honor the spirit of the person and in some ways may actually do the opposite of what they intended. So Baldwin looms super large for me and Frederick Douglass, I, I'll let Todd take that anything I said about Baldwin. But I, I think for me, Baldwin and Douglas, along with Attic Wells, are, you know, some of the most interesting figures, interesting people we talk about throughout history in, in this book. You know, uh, the interesting thing about Baldwin is you can take almost anything that he looked at, especially in race relations, and you can literally lift it, uh, what, 55, 70 years later, however long it's been. You can literally lift yeah. it and put it on today's thing, and he's he's right and almost predicted everything. You know, there's one there's one thing he says in an interview that really stuck with me, and this was in his later years, and he, he wrote, you know, I'm tired of waiting for progress. Why don't I have to wait for you? To, to get with the program and uh, you know how long do i have to wait and i when i see that i i look at where we're at now and i just go jesus we're still waiting basically well you know baldwin and malcolm x both were a little bit unkind towards martin luther king in the sense that they felt that the reforms that martin luther king was like what is it mark that that malcolm x said that uh 
Uh, I'm not interested in marching to Washington for the right to sit in the toilet next to a white man. Right. Yeah. yeah. That's the city grassroots. Right. Yeah. And to, share, uh, to share the same toilet as white folk. Exactly. <laughs> and, and, and the Baldwin too was just, just as, I mean, he, he didn't look upon the, the, the civil rights movement with much enthusiasm because he, he felt that we had all the, the incremental steps were, were just that incremental and not yeah. likely to lead to the truth to reforms that were really necessary. His big thing was, when are we going to face what we've done? And I, he was pointing the finger at white people, of course, but he, he meant a collectively as a society in the sense that I've referenced collectivism before. When are we going to face what we've done and say, okay, what are we going to do about it rather than denying it? I mean, we talked about America. Mark mentioned uh, having a, a kind of moral amnesia. We're also an ahistorical people, right? We don't mm -hmm. tend to be people who know our own history, but we, we, that's, that's a, an ignorance that we suffer at our peril. You know, you mentioned before about, we'll see, we lost Mark, we'll get, we'll get him back soon, I think, but a uh, Frederick Douglass. And one of the revelations we had in looking at the role of pictures and technology uh, going back through American history was the role that the photograph played for Frederick Douglass in the, in the middle to the late 19th century when he was the most photographed man uh, of that period. More photographs of Frederick Douglass in the 19th century than of any other person, including Abraham Lincoln. Wow. And the reason was in part because... He wanted through the few, first of all, he's interested in photography, interested in what it could do, interested in what the, that, that photographs might actually be uh, a, a reformative tool, right? Help mm -hmm. the country get through this period when they, when they renounced slavery and, and tried to rebuild the, the society. And one of the things that he felt he, the photograph could do for black people was establish their dignity, their humanity. I mean, the, 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 um, idea that that he could sit and have his picture taken and the idea that he could speak as the great orator that he was abolitionist was its own calling card for the the uh, respecting the dignity of the race hmm. and uh, i mean everywhere he went people would would want to when he wanted to talk about abolition they'd want to talk about slavery what was it like to be a slave they as if he were uh, a, a visitor from a foreign from a foreign place and the fact that he could stand up there and show his own dignity through the photograph and the many biographies, autobiographies that he wrote was a testament both to the, his predicament and to his a sense of hope. Yeah. Do you guys touch on, you know, when it comes to photographs and video, the Birmingham riots with, you know, the, the fire hoses and the dogs yeah. that really flipped the switch during the Kennedy years for civil rights, where people saw the real horror that was going on and went, this is, this is awful. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we didn't, we, we don't get into that in much detail, but we do have a, certainly it, it's the, the role of photojournalists in terms of using photographs to show reality and the nation responding to that. I, you want to try to jump in here, Mark? I think. Yeah, can you guys hear me now? Yeah. Yeah, you're breaking up just a little. Sorry, sorry. But you're all right. That's all right. writing a book on media tech. Yeah. A tech problem, but I, I I think that to Todd's point, you know the, the the civil rights struggle is advanced through you know the kind of dramatization of injustice, and you talk about Birmingham, and you know we we don't we we, we focus more on the Pettus Bridge, we focus more on one of the great theaters for this type of spectacle, which is the Edmund Pettus Bridge. Doctor King yeah. says you're not going to beat us in the backwoods of Birmingham anymore. You're not going to crack our skulls when no one's watching. I'm going to leverage the spectacle of violence in this case 
in such a way that people will see it. See, George Floyd and Mike Brown and, and Breonna Taylor, I mean, these are all modern day stories, right? But we could look at Emmett Till. August 28th, 1955, Emmett Till is killed. And his face is three times the normal size. It's swollen. It's, it's, it's impossible to look at. They dragged and beat that boy, threw him in the Tallahatchie River. And his mom, like most moms, would be inclined to have a closed casket. Mm-hmm. But she wanted to have an open casket because she knew that the spectacle of his death and the spectacle of the violence that was visited upon him could have an impact on public consciousness. So she used the technology of the day, the camera, the same camera that Frederick Douglass used to assert his dignity, right? Mm-hmm. She used the camera and she used the social media of the day. Jet Magazine was a form of social media for black folk. Mm-hmm. It, you know, Johnson Family Publishing, that's what we used to find out who got married, what the top songs were, the, the four black people that got jobs that week. You know, you'd find out about it in Jet Magazine, right? So Jet mm-hmm. Magazine was our way of showing information. And on this cover of Jet Magazine is Emmett Till's mutilated body. Yeah. And so that doesn't just lead to outcry. It leads to Montgomery bus boycotts. Mm-hmm. It leads to the modern day civil rights movement that culminates on August 28th of 63. So we go from August 28th of 55 Emmett Till's Lynch to August 28th of 63. Why? Because of media and technology. And while millions of people were on the mall for March on Washington, millions more would hear it because of media and technology. And so by the time we get to the, to the Pettus Bridge, right, we fast forward again, just a year, just a year and some change. We, we suddenly see again, King saying, I'm going to use technology of the day, the TV news camera, and I'm going to use the social media of the day, evening news, all three channels, right? To do what? To broadcast this spectacle of violence. Why? So that America will be forced to come to terms with it. So mm-hmm. again, the, 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 these tactics, you know, again, same thing we found out when we heard about those four girls in Birmingham. Same thing we found out at sit-ins and all these things. Bull Connors, dogs, all of it was strategically using the technology and tools of the day to do something different. Mm-hmm. One, one of the things, Chris, that we discovered in the, doing this book, I think, I think Mark will agree with me, is that courage is contagious, right? Mm-hmm. Courage yes. is contagious. So what he just laid out, I mean, it is, is because of what Mamie Till does, leaving that casket open, that we get the Montgomery bus boycott, mm-hmm. you know, that we get Little Rock, that we get all the way to the March on Washington, and all the way finally to Darnella Frazier, the... Mm-hmm. 17-year-old was walking down a Minneapolis street and could have kept on walking. Probably felt there was some danger to her standing there. Mm-hmm. The situation was escalating, but she did pull out her phone, raised it up, and she kept it on a scene of a man dying. Um, yeah. There's courage in that. Yeah. It's it's powerful that we have these sort of tools. I know now they're supposed to, they're supposed to be more police officers that have body cameras on. So that we can try and capture stuff if they, you know, don't turn them off. I guess there's been some guys that have turned them off at different scenes. There's, you know, more and more. I mean, just it's, it's, uh, there's video everywhere you go and, and video usually just doesn't lie. I mean, you're like, yeah, I can see, I can trust and see what my own eyes tell me. What are some other aspects we want to tease out about the book? Well, let me push back on one. I think Todd and I both go ahead, Todd. (laughs) No, no, you go ahead. You go ahead. Oh, I said video, video lies a lot. That's one of the one of the the, the, the lessons we've learned throughout this project is that video or is a text 
And like mm-hmm. any text, I mean, imagine if we laid a Bible on the ground or a Quran or on the table, excuse me, laid a Bible on the table or a Quran on the table. It said, oh, it speaks for itself. You have 50 million people arguing. In fact, there have been centuries of, of battles and debates and even wars based on what this seemingly objective, clear text says, right? Now you said mm-hmm. video is different because you can see it. It's not open to, 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 to any kind of disagreement. It is what it is. Until you, until you lay down on, until you lay down and have to look at the spectacle of violence between a police officer and a citizen. And somebody says, well, yeah, he was, the officer was threatened. I feel the same way. And someone else says, no, like the guy wasn't threatening the officer. The officer intensified or escalated this until you have to watch an, an interaction. We could debate over and over and over. And, and, and it's, and just like if we're debating balls and strikes in a baseball game, right? And I'm from Philadelphia. So that's what we do all the time. We, we may disagree with the an umpire's decision, and ultimately there may not be no ultimate truth. It's how you see it. It's how you're calling the strikes, balls and strikes that day. It's how big the zone is. It's it, it, it's related to the player who comes up. All of these things matter. There's no such thing as a video that doesn't have a context to it. And in the United States, that context it, it has to include race, class, gender, uh, geography, religion, all of those things. And so, unfortunately. When Rodney King is beaten and the jurors see that video, they're not just seeing a black guy get beaten by some cops. They're also they're also seeing a history of black people being framed as violent. So when the mm-hmm. when the when the prosecution when the defense officer when the defense lawyer say, "Oh, this guy was a PCP crazed monster who would have destroyed the city of LA single handedly if they hadn't subdued him bravely," that's the story we get. Yeah. And I suppose that's, I just add one thing there, though, Chris, because uh, uh, that's where I was going to go, Mark. You're absolutely right. But what makes the the George Floyd video so compelling is that you stop, I would, many people stop, I should say, who may have believed that, who had a bias towards the, the decency of the, and the motivation of police. You stop and you say, maybe I'm wrong. Mm. Maybe I'm wrong. And, and, and that was its power. Part of its power it was certainly that it disrupted, was transformative in this sense. And you saw it across the country. The, as, as Mark has said many times as we've been interviewed on this book, you know, it's because uh, of what happened there that we have the discussion about defunding the police. It's because of what happened there that other episodes are now looked upon with more credibility, right? Mm-hmm. Even if the video isn't quite, right, quite as compelling, because now we, we have this sense that yes, this is possible. This may even be probable in certain circumstances. Yeah, you guys are right, too. I didn't think about the factor of, of even like prejudices when people look at stuff. Because I know there were some people who looked at the George Floyd thing and on the Republican side that are like, you know, rule of law and all that, yeah, you know, rim raw from Dixon. And I think it goes back further than that. But yeah, it's, it's, it's incredible. You know, and, and now you see us doing this fight over uh, critical race theory and people, you know, they don't want to deal with the shame of it. And I think that's one of the mediums of, of, of the video and, and, and the stuff that we've talked about is that it's a mirror to us and it's shameful and it, and it hurts. It's, it's painful, especially if you have a conscience or, or some sort of empathy. And, and yet we're still fighting over, you know, that maybe we should learn parts of our history that were whitewashed. We've we've had a ton of great authors on this show that have educated me on so much that I was never taught was whitewashed in school that I that I should have learned and and didn't. And 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 now it's time for us to reconcile that. 
Yeah, I think that one of the things that that we should get comfortable with is that history is messy. You know, it's not uh, one one story of glory after another, and that's okay. You know, so long as we face it. I mean, Baldwin said we can't change everything that we can that we face, but we certainly can't. But we must face everything that. I'm not going to get this wrong. Now. We we can't change everything that we face, but we should face everything that everything has changed needs to be faced. I think that's what it is. So the idea being that that we we have to be honest, we have to be genuine, we have to be able to look ourselves at ourselves warts and all in order to be able to move forward. Yeah, one of my sayings in my audiences heard it enough there. You're probably going to believe when I say it again. But one of my sayings is the one thing man can learn from his history is that man never learns from his history and thereby we just go around and around and uh, never learn anything. And so, you know, facing this, I, I guess, we, you know, the sad part is, is the volume of what we have to face to where we finally wake up and go, what is this too much? You know, it's almost like school shootings. It's like, when is it enough? I mean, I remember Obama saying that when he, he gave up in a speech and he was crying and I think it was after Sandy Hook. So like, when, when is it enough? And of course, sadly, you know, I mean, it's, it's been so much more. So very interesting. Mark, did you want to throw in for anything here? I know, you know, ultimately, you know, when I think about the future of this country, when I think about our capacity to be better, I'm still deeply hopeful. I'm not optimistic. I don't think things are just going to work out, but I remain a prisoner of hope. W.E.B. Du Bois called it a hope, not hopeless, but unhopeful. Mm. Sounds like my first six marriages. I'm just kidding. I have to get a joke in there. And one joke per show, I guess. One of the things that if we commit ourselves, yeah. that if we work hard, if we make sacrifices, if we're honest, if we face the things that we can change, that we can do better. You, you guys can hear me, right? Yeah. Yeah. Now we hear you. So, oh, by talking about this idea of a chance. And for me, we always have another chance. But if we do the same things over and over again, we'll get the same outcomes. Another chance to mm -hmm. be democratic, another chance to be a nation as good as its promise, another chance to be whole, another chance to have a, a what Dr. King referred to as the beloved community. We can get all of that. But to do it, we got to do the work. And in this mm -hmm. book, I think we do our best to show people what the work can look like. We do our best to show what's possible and we do our best to show what's left, what's some of the worst of us. And I think the use of media and technology is just a small slice of the story of American justice and racial justice in particular. But I think it's a necessary part of the conversation. And I think this book, I hope, I pray this book exposes, again, not just who we are and who we've been, but what's possible and what we can do with that other chance. Hopefully it can appeal to our better angels. The I wish I had invented the term, but I who did invent that term? Was it Abraham Lincoln or Abraham Lincoln, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So guys, it's it's been wonderful having the show. Anything you want to tease out more to readers to get them to go over the book before we go? You know, I would just say that we're, I think both of us are very proud of this book. You know, you don't write a book to uh, make money. I can tell you that. You don't write a book to pad your ego, but you write a book, I mean, a good book, because you feel passionately about what it is you have to say. 
And I think we both feel very passionately about the the uh, helping people understand these past few years, helping people understand the new terrain, the new country we're in, in a sense, with our new technologies and how we have another chance to address our our, our story, the American story of race. Um, and so, I, I, you know, I, I urge people to go out and 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 purchase the book and and or get it from your local library or you know get your book club just to to read it because I think it also is the kind of book that sparks a lot of conversation, necessary conversation for our country at this moment. Most definitely, most definitely. So as we go out, hopefully we'll have Mark pop in here so we can get his plugs. Give me your plugs so people can find you on the interwebs. Yeah. So just toddbrewster.com. I'm not the biggest tweeter or, uh, you know, social media guide for despite the nature of this book, but I, you can reach out to me on, on, on LinkedIn. You can reach out to me on my own website. You can reach out to me on Twitter. I'm on all these places, Instagram, Todd Brewster, 3131, I believe it is. So thank you for, for having us on, Chris. Thank you for coming on. And in fact, let me try and plug, I believe Mark's new website is, is being worked on. Oh, he's back. Let's see if we can get him in here and get his plugs in. Sorry, I, 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 I was talking my head off and realized you guys couldn't hear. <laughs> no problem. Hey, can you give us your plugs as we go out? Come on, phone gods, work with us. But I believe Mark's book is Mark or is dot com, and I believe it's being built right now. It's Mark Lamont Hill dot com. Do you know your his Twitter off the top of your head? By chance, uh, I I don't know it. I'm sorry. Okay. I, I, yeah. Well, but you'll fix the thing. Just plug in this, this search. You'll it'll come up. Yeah. There you go. So, folks, it's been wonderful to have both you guys on. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. Appreciate it. Thank you, and thanks to Mark. And uh, hopefully, he arrives safely at his destination. Uh, guys, order up the book: A Seen and Unseen: Technology, Social Media, and the Fight for Racial Justice by Mark Lamont Hill and Todd. Brewster. Also go to goodreads.com for says Chris Voss. See my book and everything we're reading and reviewing over there. Go to youtube.com for says Chris Voss. Hit the bell notification button. All of our groups on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, all those crew places the crazy kids play. Thanks very much for tuning in. Be good to each other. Stay safe and we'll see you guys next time.